if you will, if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15, that's where we're going to be at in our time together this morning. So I'll give you a second to turn there. While you're turning there, um, so back in the fall, let's see, well, it probably would have been November, maybe December, I can vividly remember walking into my kitchen, uh, our, our previous house before we, we moved here, and... Um, I remember uttering some words to my wife that have haunted me to this day. Uh, <laughs> it's probably not going to be what you think, but I remember, so I remember walking in, leaning up against the kitchen cabinets, and, and these are, this is exactly what I said. You ready? I said, I think Kentucky's going to have a good basketball team this year. <laughs> so... Uh, now we sit here on the eve of the uh, championship game, and uh, the Cats are not playing, so I'm a little bit disappointed. I thought when the season started, everybody's talking about the drive for nine, right? The drive for nine, the drive for nine. I thought it was titles. Apparently, we were just trying to get nine wins, okay? It's a tough year. It's a tough year. And if you are, listen, if, if you are a Louisville fan, you guys didn't make it either, okay? So... That was my only consolation, is Louisville and Duke didn't make the tournament either. So I'm like, you know what? Not so bad. Um, but anyways, um, what's unfortunate is now I'm looking, at, I'm looking at football season. You know, I'm like, well, at least there's football season, which if you historically have followed UK football, is a terrible place to put your hope. Um, but here we are. So anyways, the reason I bring that up is because I bought just full in to the preseason hype. Right? I, I was like, this, this is going to be one of the best teams we've ever had. Right? I bought, I mean, I, hook, line, and sinker. Like, I bought it all. And what I've come to find out now, <laughs> at the end of the season, is that I was basically just completely deceived. Right? I had bought the lie. Now, they didn't know it was a lie at the time. But I had bought into the lie that Kentucky is going to be awesome. It's going to be one of the best teams we've ever seen. We might even go undefeated. It's going to be incredible. Right? And now what... Time has revealed, a few months has revealed, that all that was just nothing but uh, a bunch of deceit and deception. Not intentionally, but, but I was deceived into believing that we were going to be good. Okay? Now, in the grand scheme of things, here's what I know. I love sports. In the grand scheme of things, they really don't matter. Okay? I know, like, Kentucky not making the tournament, not even winning 10 games, in the grand scheme of things, doesn't really affect my life at all. Buying into the hype and believing the lie and being deceived about that has no lasting impact on my life. Maybe it makes me a little bitter this time of year, but other than that, right, other than that, it's not a big deal. But there are areas in life, there are things in which if we buy into the lie or if we allow ourselves to be deceived, like it could be dangerous. Right? And, and what we're going to talk about this morning you know, about the resurrection. So when it comes to some things, if we allow ourselves to be deceived, then man, there's eternal consequences. It's a lot more than just your favorite team not making the tournament. Right? The, the consequences are eternal when we're deceived about the wrong things. So that's the setup for 1 Corinthians 15. Let me give you a little context before we read. Um, this is a letter that, that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And uh, it's actually, fun fact, not the first letter he wrote to the church in Corinth. I know it's called 1 Corinthians, but if you read through 1 Corinthians, 
what you see is he actually refers to a previous letter that he wrote. Uh, and for whatever reason, and God's sovereign purposes, that letter was not preserved, so we don't know what it said. But uh, we do have uh, the letter, this letter to the church in Corinth. And um, what he's doing is he's, it's a church, so it's a group of believers, and he's writing to because there's, he's doing some course correction. Right? So for whatever, like, it must have been really bad in the church in Corinth. And we kind of read through some of that. Right? They've got at least three letters somewhere. We know of two, but there's a third one somewhere, at least floating around somewhere, uh, preserved, maybe not preserved for us, but uh, exists uh, in ancient history where he felt compelled to write to the church in Corinth to correct some things that were going wrong. And so we read through uh, the letter and we read about things like uh, how there's division, like there's quarreling and there's fighting uh, that's caused division in the church in Corinth. Uh, there's uh, things about, uh, I, there's idolatry. He addresses idolatry. He addresses, uh, says, immorality, the kind that even the pagans won't tolerate, which, my goodness, what could that have been, right? <laughs> that even the, the pagans won't tolerate the things that were going on in the church. And so, as I was reading through it this week, just preparing, um, I see a lot of things, maybe you don't, I, obviously in my line of work, I see a lot of things where it's like, you know, here's everything that's wrong with the church today. We need to get back to the first century church. And I, I think I kind of understand the reasoning people say that. But then I read through this and I'm like, we have, we're not, <laughs> we have not changed that much, right? The same things you read about in 1 Corinthians are the things we're still experiencing today in the church. The church is not perfect. On this side of eternity, the church will never be perfect. But the church is the bride of Christ, Okay. Nonetheless, so um, anyways, you got like the church in Corinth is, is a mess. And specifically what we're going to look at today is there was some uh, false teaching doctrine that has sort of crept in. Right? There's a group in the New Testament you read, read about called the Sadducees. Uh, and, and among their beliefs, one of the things that they believed, or I guess didn't believe, uh, they did not believe in the physical or bodily resurrection of the dead. And so Paul, what he's going to do in these few verses we're going to look at, is he's going to take uh, that belief that it kind of crept into the church. Right, The Sadducees held this belief, and somehow that it kind of crept into the church in Corinth, that, uh, that there is no resurrection from the dead. Like, once you're dead, that's it. All right, game over. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to take that idea that there is no resurrection, and he's just going to sort of logically deconstruct it in the way that Paul does over and over again throughout the Bible. All right, so 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting in verse 12. We're just going to kind of work, work our way through it. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And so like, right out of the gate, Paul is establishing uh, the significance of, of physical or bodily resurrection. Remember, he's writing to a church in Corinth that they believe that Jesus, and they're professing believers. They say Jesus is the Savior of the world. And so what Paul's saying here is like, hey, um, you are the, the church in Corinth, you, you're professing believers, but listen, if you deny that there's a bodily or physical resurrection, then not even Jesus has been raised, which creates some problems for your faith, right? which is what he's going to go on 
and say next in verse 14. It says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. All right, so, so Paul started to kind of deconstruct the argument here. And he's, the first thing he says uh, is this. Basically, hey, if you don't believe in the resurrection, right? If, if, if Christ has not been raised or resurrected, then my preaching, our preaching, he's talking about him and, and the other uh, apostles of the day, our, our preaching is in vain. Right? If there is no resurrection, Jesus has not been raised, this message, this is Paul basically saying, this message that I've given my life to proclaim uh, to you and to the ends of the earth is, is powerless. Right? I'm wasting my time preaching. I'm wasting my time sharing the good news of the gospel with you if Jesus has not been raised. Right? My preaching is in vain. He even says that uh, if Christ has not been resurrected, then, then he's guilty of misrepresenting God. Right? Because Paul's message, he's been preaching God raised Jesus from the dead in victory over sin and death and the grave. And so Paul's saying, hey, if, there's, if Christ has not been raised, if there's no resurrection, then I've lied to you about who God is. I've misrepresented Him. I've lied about His, his power. I've lied about His character. I've lied about uh, who He is and what He has done if Christ has not been raised. Right? Paul's saying, I have preached a lie to you if it's true that there is no resurrection. But then he goes on in verse 16, still going through with his argument. It says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Right? That's the, the thing he just keeps saying over and over again. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. So, so here you kind of got like this downward spiral in, in Paul's uh, sort of confronting their belief in that day. The first thing he says is that, hey, if, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. Futile is the word that he, he uses. Right? It means it's meaningless. Remember, he's writing to the church in Corinth who believed to some degree that Jesus was the Savior of the world, that He died to save them from their sins, but at least some of them did not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so Paul's saying, hey, if you don't believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, then your faith is futile. It's in vain. It's meaningless. Right? Because the resurrection is central to the gospel. Earlier in this chapter, the very first Sunday I preached to you as your campus pastor. We looked at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 3. And central to that message, right, is that, that Christ died in accordance with Scripture, that He was buried, and then on the third day He rose. Like that's central to the gospel message. And so now Paul's saying, hey, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then you don't have a gospel. If you don't believe in the resurrection, your faith, this thing that you profess to believe, is pointless it's meaningless. It's in vain. And because a Jesus that's still dead is of no benefit to you. But then he, he takes the argument further and he says, if Christ has not been raised, 
not only is your faith in vain, but you're still in your sin. Because the, the, the resurrection, so we, we think of the cross, right? It's like the central symbol of Christianity, as it should be. Right? The cross is where all of God's wrath was poured out for all of our sin, past, present, and future. Right? Poured out on Jesus, he absorbed all the wrath that we deserved, died for our sins on the cross. So payment was made on the cross. But the cross is only half the transaction. Right? Because the resurrection is proof that the payment was sufficient. Right? I, I want to ask you to raise your hands, but if any, any of you ever wrote a check and you, like, you just hope there's enough money in the bank, so you keep checking back, like, oh, I hope that cleared. Right? That's what the resurrection is. It's proof that the check has cleared. Your sins have been paid for in full. There's nothing else for you to give. There's nothing else for you to do. You don't add to it. Jesus' payment was sufficient enough and the resurrection is proof because He died for our sins and He raised in, in victory over our sins, over death, over the grave. And so Paul's saying, hey, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then what you're saying is the payment was not complete. The payment was not sufficient. And if that's the case, you're still in your sin. And if you're still in your sin, then he goes on to the next thing. If there is no resurrection, then there is no hope beyond this life. Right? That's what he said in verse 19. He says, if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. If there is no resurrection, your faith is in vain, it's pointless, it's meaningless. If there is no resurrection, uh, you are still trapped and stuck in your sin. And if you are trapped and stuck in your sin, if you don't believe there's a resurrection, then there is no hope beyond this life. Verse 18, he said, all those people that have gone before you, that have died before you, if there's no res resurrection, like that's it. They've perished. The end. End of the story. Right? And because recent studies show that one out of every one person dies, I, some of you guys will get that in a minute. Right, our, our end is the same if there's no resurrection. If you don't believe in the resurrection. There is no hope beyond this life. And so here's Paul deconstructing their belief, their denial of the resurrection. Here's, here's his conclusion. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you are just wasting your time believing in Jesus. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you're wasting your time with Jesus. Because there is, if, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus is still dead. And if Jesus is still dead and in the tomb, then all you have is a good moral teacher that might help you treat your neighbor a little better, might help you feel a little bit better about yourself sometimes. But a dead Jesus offers you nothing in terms of eternal hope. Because your faith is futile. You're still in your sins, and there's no hope beyond this life. Right, so if Jesus is still dead, then obedience to him is pointless. Obedience to his word is pointless. Right? Me preaching up here is pointless if Jesus is still dead. Right? I would have to find a new career because like, there would be nothing if Jesus is still dead. Right? If Jesus is still dead, you're wasting your time being here this morning. Or if you're watching online, you're, like, you could be doing anything else. 
Like my yard needs to be mowed really badly right now. Anybody else? My home is destroyed because I am renovating it. I have plenty of other things I could be doing that would be more uh, profitable if Jesus is still dead. And the same is true for you. If Jesus is still dead, there's no salvation. There's no forgiveness of sin. There's no uh, hope beyond this life. And as Paul says later on in this chapter, if Jesus is still dead, let us eat and drink because tomorrow we die. And if this was the end of the story, Paul says, and if this was the end of the story, with Jesus dead and rotting in a tomb, then we of all people are to be most pitied. Like if this, if this was the end of the story, like we should, people should feel sorry that we actually believe this stuff. But that's not the end of the story. That's why we're here today, right? Because that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But in, Paul says, in fact, there is no room for doubt in Paul's mind. Right? He, doesn't say, he doesn't say, I think Christ has been raised from the dead. He doesn't say, there's a good chance Christ has been raised from the dead. He doesn't even say, like, I've heard that Christ has been raised from the dead. He says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, how does Paul, has Paul know that? Because he's seen the resurrected Jesus. And if you go back to verse 8 in the same chapter, Paul's kind of talking about his experience uh, with the resurrected Jesus. And he says this in verse 8. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he, being Jesus, appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul, Paul can say that, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead because Paul saw Christ raised from the dead. Right, so if you don't know Paul's story, uh, Paul was... Uh, formerly known as Saul when he was a, a Pharisee persecutor of the church. Right? Paul, uh, in his previous life, would go uh, round up Christians, have them arrested right, because they were preaching or proclaiming or believing that Jesus was who Jesus said he was and did what he said he did. Paul was once an opponent to Jesus. Paul, was once, uh, he, <laughs> Paul would once have said, hey, you believing in this whole Jesus resurrection thing is, is kind of foolish, is what Paul would have once said. Uh, but read about this in the book of Acts. Paul, on his way to have more Christians arrested and thrown into prison, guess who he runs into? Jesus. And, and I would just imagine, like when you run into someone that was once dead, it's not dead anymore. That has a lasting effect on your life. Right? It did for Paul. Right? Because Paul's walking down the road to have more Christians thrown in jail. Uh, and he runs into the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus says, my paraphrase, hey, you're working for me now. So Paul's like, okay, I guess I am. Right? And so Paul goes from being an opponent, a persecutor of the church, to now 
proclaiming and spreading the same gospel message to the ends of the earth. Now, this is not my notes, but I do have a question. <laughs> if Paul's known for like persecuting Christians and throwing them in jail, what do you think that first interaction was like when he goes to some people and he's like, hey, let me tell you about Jesus? <laughs> like, what are those people like? Uh, is this a trick? <laughs> right, you know? But no, Paul's life radically changed because he, he had an experience with the resurrected Jesus. It's the good news of the resurrection that changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. So let me give us three sort of points this morning uh, to kind of take this out of first century Corinth and into our lives today. Because of the resurrection, because it changes everything. Here's the first one. Because of the resurrection, you can trust God's word. Right? Because of the resurrection, you can trust God's word. Verses 14 and 15, Paul points out, he says, Hey, if, if there is no resurrection, then my preaching is in vain. This message that I proclaim to you is pointless and meaningless if there is no resurrection. But in fact, Christ was raised from the dead. So there is a resurrection, which means... That Paul's preaching is not in vain. Right? The word that he's preaching. Now granted, he wasn't preaching the same thing I hold here today because a lot of it wasn't written in Paul's day. But right, the message, God's message to his people, God's word, you can believe it. It's true. And the resurrection is evidence of that. Because the whole Bible, like, let's just do this, the Bible. okay, 66 books split up into two different Testaments, Old Testament, New Testament. 66 different books written by approximately 40 or so authors uh, of different cultures and backgrounds over the course of several hundred years, well over a thousand years. There's uh, just a, over a long, long, long period of time. And it all tells one story. And the central part of that story is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So as early as Genesis 3, right, you got God creating everything, right, everything's awesome. Uh, Adam's there naming the animals, then Adam gets Eve, and then all of a sudden sin enters the world in Genesis 3. And what you read, I think it's verse 15 in Genesis 3, like no, almost no sooner than Adam and Eve had sinned, like they're still trying to cover up in fig leaves, and God shows up on the scene and he says, hey, I've got a plan. One day there's going to be an offspring born to a woman and he's going to crush Satan. And that happens in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So as early as Genesis 3, the whole Old Testament looks forward to this event that we're proclaiming this morning. All right, the whole Old Testament looks forward to it. Then you get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, tell all about Jesus' life, tell about his death, and they all testify to his resurrection. Then you get the rest of the New Testament is all about taking that message that Jesus is alive and spreading it to the ends of the earth and also pointing believers back to that as the most central message in all of the Bible. And then you get to the book of Revelation. Amid all the crazy stuff that's going on there, the central theme of Revelation is this, that Jesus is alive, Jesus is risen, Jesus is reigning and ruling, and He is coming back for His bride. The whole message testifies to this message that Jesus is alive, he's resurrected. And because like, the resurrection brings the whole Bible together, 
You can trust God's Word. It's worthy of your reading and your study and your meditating and your singing and your praying. And it's worthy of being preached. It's worthy of being proclaimed to the ends of the earth because it's true. The resurrection is evidence that it's true. The second thing is this. Because of the resurrection, your sin can be forgiven. So in verse 17, Paul said that without the resurrection, we are still in our sin. But because there is a resurrection, you can be forgiven your sin. All of it. Right? Because of the resurrection, because the payment cleared, we're not stuck in our sin. So let me just be as explicit as I can. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I don't know how you walked in here. That's between you and the Lord. I don't know. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, here's, I'm going to give you some bad news, but I'm going to give you some really good news. The bad news is that you are a sinner and that your sin separates you from a holy God. And there's nothing that you can do to pay the price for your sin. There's no amount of good effort. There's no amount of uh, church attendance. There's no amount of, like, there's nothing that you can humanly do to pay for your sin. That's the bad news. But the good news is God made the payment for you by sending His Son to the cross. And on the cross, He bore all the wrath, God's wrath toward your sin and towards my sin, all of it, past, present, future. Jesus took all of that on Himself on the cross satisfied God's wrath. All right, the big fancy theological word is propitiation. You guys just learned a word today, didn't you? All right. God's wrath was satisfied on the cross for all of your sin. If you would believe on Him, you can have forgiveness of sin because Jesus resurrected. The payment was sufficient. There's nothing more for you to do but trust and believe. Right? Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Acknowledge your need for a Savior and trust that Jesus was that Savior for you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, that's good news for you this morning. Your sin can be forgiven. And if you want to know more about, okay, how do I do that? How do I trust? How do I repent? We're going to have a time of response at the end of the service and, and we can talk about that. We can talk after the service. Right? We can talk later this week. But I want you to know that your sin can be forgiven. I would love to tell you more about that. But this is not just good news for the non-Christian. This is good news for the Christian. If you're here and you are a Christian, the fact that your sins can be forgiven, one should just amaze you every day. You don't have to walk in guilt. You don't have to walk in shame. You don't have to walk under this burden of, oh, Because your sin can be forgiven. And if you've trusted in Christ, your sin has been forgiven. There's nothing more for you to do but trust and believe and just keep repenting. That's what we we read that in the Gospels, to to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus, His death on the cross, His resurrection was payment for all your sin, past, present, future, so that you can be forgiven. And the third thing is this. Because there is a resurrection, you can have eternal life. Look at verse 21. 
Paul says, For as by a man came death, by a man came, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So again, earlier Paul said, Without the resurrection, there is no hope beyond this life. Like you die, the end, that's it. But because there is a resurrection, because there is a resurrection, there's hope beyond this life. You can have eternal life. Isn't that good news? Eternal life? Because here's, I'm just, right, just going to be straight with you. I love life. Like, I love life on this earth. I was talking to Pastor Scott about this in the office this week. I don't even remember what we were talking about. I just remember us having a conversation about, like, I just enjoy living. I enjoy having fun. I, to be fair, like, I've had a really, the like, Lord has been so gracious to me. I've had a pretty easy life. And I talked about this last week. I haven't experienced a lot of suffering. I know some of you have. All of our lives are different. But for me personally, like, I've had a, just a good life. I love my family. I love, I love my wife. I love my kids. I love just the things that life has to, to offer. Like even just the most simple things. Like I love them. I just like living. But one thing I've noticed increasingly in my 33, coming up on 34 years of life, is that more and more and more, the things of this life just seem a little hollow. Right? Like there's just, there's got to be more, right? I don't know if it's because I'm getting older. By the way, I got a letter in the mail the other day that was addressed to like American seniors. <laughs> 33, man, slow down. Right? But the longer I live, the more I'm just like, the things of this earth just seem more and more hollow. Doesn't mean I can't enjoy them. Doesn't mean I don't love them. But I feel like there's just a longing for eternity more and more and more. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis. If you guys know C.S. Lewis, uh, just brilliant mind. Listen to what he writes. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Because of the resurrection, you can have eternal life. Right? Because of the resurrection, those, those desires that you have, and we, listen, let's be honest, we all have these desires for more. Right? That longing that you can't seem to like satisfy is because it wasn't meant to be satisfied in the things of this earth. Right? There's no amount of money, there's no amount of of, of uh, power, there's no amount of prestige, there's no, like, it doesn't matter what level you get to, we're always, like, reaching for something more because the things of this earth will never satisfy, like, the deepest needs of your soul. They just won't. Because those, the only things that will satisfy you ultimately are eternal things. And the good news of the resurrection is that you can have eternal life. Eternal life forever with the Lord in heaven. And, and I don't know what heaven's going to be like, right? Full disclosure. I know a few things from what the book tells us. I don't know the full extent of what heaven will be like. But I know that it, I am told that 
in the presence of God is fullness of joy. Anybody ready to sign up for uh, some full joy? Right? You think about the most joyous experience you've had on this earth and to know that, that it doesn't compare with what it will be like to be in God's presence. Right? In God's presence is fullness of joy. It also says that at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Endless enjoyment, endless pleasure. Sign me up. I'm in. And we, we get that because of the resurrection. So here's where we're going to sort of land the plane. Right? Is like, what do we do with all this? Right? The resurrection, it's true. We believe it. We can trust God's word. We can be forgiven of our sins. We can have eternal life. Now, what? So here's what we're going to do in just a moment. Um, here in a few minutes, we're going to sing a song of response and we're going to observe, observe the Lord's Supper. And we're going to sing a little more and then we're going to walk back into a regular week. Unless you're going on spring break and then talk to me afterwards because I'd like to know if you have room for one more. But right, what do we do with this when we go back out into a normal week? Why is the res- like, what does the resurrection change for us? And if you look down, verse 32, same chapter. Paul says this, If the dead are not raised, kind of the second half of the verse, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. But look at verse 34. He says, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. My guess here this morning is that most of you are here because you believe in the resurrection. My guess that my guess, now maybe it's a guess, is that most of you here like weren't totally offended or shocked by anything that I said in terms of the resurrection. Okay, now maybe you were. I don't, if, if you're here and you don't believe in the resurrection, one, I'm glad you're here. Two, I don't think it's by accident that you're here, so maybe you should lean into that. Um, but, but right, my guess is that most of us believe in the resurrection. Okay, so I'm not trying to convince you that Jesus was actually raised from the dead because you probably believe it already. But here's what I am trying to convince you of. And here's what Paul would convince you of in these last few verses is that the resurrection demands a different way of living. The resurrection demands a different way of living. That's why he says, hey, wake up. Stop stumbling around like you're drunk. Be purposeful. Be intentional. You can't hear the good news that Jesus was buried. buried, He paid the price for your sin on the cross. He was buried. He rose again. You can't hear that and just kind of go on about your life and be like, oh, cool story, bro. It demands a different way of living. And the disciples got this. And if you know anything about sort of church history, what happens is, and really in some of it's in the New Testament, the disciples, Jesus is arrested and he's crucified and they just go into hiding. Right? They lock themselves up in rooms because they're like, oh man, if that's what happened to Jesus, what's going to happen to us? Okay? And then all of a sudden Jesus shows up a couple days later again, alive, and their lives change. Right? They go from cowering and hunkering in fear, locking themselves 
up inside a room. So all of a sudden, they're going out to the ends of the earth, spreading the good news that Jesus is alive. And for most of the disciples, it cost them their life. If you're into apologetics or the defense of the faith, one of the strongest apologetics, I think, for the reality of who Jesus is and what he did is the fact that these men went from being cowards to willingly giving their lives because of the resurrected Jesus. The disciples got it. A resurrection, the resurrection demands a different way of living. And the same is true for us. If you're here and you're a Christian, stop sleepwalking through the Christian life. God has so much more for you than just showing up every couple Sundays, singing a few songs, and going back to life as normal. He has more for you than that. He wants more for you than that. So, so here's what I'm saying. The resurrection demands a different way of living. So give yourself to the reading and the study and obedience to God's word. Give yourself to walking in righteousness. That's what Paul says. Go, do not go on sinning. Will you be perfect in this life? No. But can you strive for righteousness and obedience? Yes. So that's what Paul's saying. Hey, give yourself to striving, walking in righteousness, repenting of your sin. Give yourself, give yourself to the church. Not just like the organized gathering every Sunday morning, but give yourself to God's people to living in community with other people that are going to encourage you in the same direction. Give yourself to loving your neighbor. Give yourself to loving your neighbor and sharing the good news of the resurrection with them. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, or if you're watching online and you're not a Christian, give yourself to Christ. Give yourself to Christ. Because the resurrection is true and it is good news. It is the best news. It's the news that changes everything. Right? So I invite you, if you would, to go ahead and stand with me. Let me tell you what's going to happen here. We're going to, the band's going to come and they're going to lead us in a song, just a song of response. I know we're going to receive the Lord's Supper here in just a minute as well, but here's what I would ask. As they're singing, just, just respond how the Lord would have you respond. Quietly in your own seat, if that's you. I just repent where necessary. Confess where necessary. Express your gratitude. Right, maybe through singing, but maybe you just need to stand and pray quietly. Maybe you need to sit and pray quietly. Maybe you need to come to the altar. Right, whatever that looks like for you. This first song is a song of response. And then after that, we're going to come and together, corporately, as one body, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper and then after that, we're going to celebrate like crazy because Jesus is alive. All right? So let's pray for us. Father, we come to you this morning and we are thankful for the good news of the resurrection. It changes everything. It changed everything in history. It changes everything for us today. So Lord, help us to not, help us to not go out here differently than when we came in because the resurrection demands... Resurrection demands that we live differently. It demands a response. So that's going to be different for all of us. Or for those that maybe are here or listening 
that have never put their trust in you, I pray that for them it would be that they actually believe that you died to save them from their sins and they put their trust in you for the first time. I pray that that would be the response of some this morning. For many more of us in this room, Father, that I, I would presume that we've done that, I pray that whatever the response looks like to you because of the good news that you're alive, maybe it means that we need to give ourselves more to your word because it's true and trustworthy. Maybe it means we need to give ourselves more to the church, to serving others, to loving our neighbor, to proclaiming the good news of the gospel to those you've put in our our circles of influence, or whatever our response is, would you move us to respond this morning? We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the good news of the resurrection. So Lord, be honored even as we respond this morning, even as we sing. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.